And so let us hear God's word from 1 Samuel 25, beginning in verse 2. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was in the house of Caleb. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And then you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard <coughs> that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. <clears throat> Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat and that I have killed for my shears and give it to men whom, when I do not know where they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. And David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. And the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything, as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and day, all the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five sails of roasted grain, one hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, Go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under the cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met him, met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present, which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass... When the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. 
Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left in a ball. So David received from her hand what she had brought him, and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning, when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. And it happened after about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal in his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth, and said, Here's your maidservant, servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michael his wife, uh, Michael his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. <clears throat> Amen. Well, we, of course, have been following David here as he has been uh, fleeing from Saul around to different places. And uh, we've seen David do this righteously. Uh, fleeing initially to Samuel, and even, as I argued, to Ahimelech the priest. Uh, We've seen him rescuing his family, even helping others along the way, especially those in Calah. We have seen God also be with David, protecting him, rescuing David. Like, we've seen God give a heavenly intel to David and helped him to escape from those in Calah. And then also providentially, Uh, sending the Philistines to stop Saul just prior to chasing David down. Now, here now, a few weeks ago, we saw in chapter 24, David righteously sparing Saul when he had the opportunity to kill him. David relied on the Lord, on his providence and his promises, and would not take matters into his own hands. And God spared David here as well. But we've also seen David not do so well. Most notably, when he went to Gath and spoke to Achish. There, you recall, he pretended that he was crazy rather than relying on the Lord to protect him. Well, now we come to a similar scenario, at least in part, here in this chapter. We see David responding sinfully, at least at first. Now, as just read all these verses... It's a rather lengthy section. There's much for us to cover here. And so my intention is to do it in three sections tonight through verse 17. So let's look at verse 2. Now there is a man of my own whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. All right. Well, first of all, let's uh, take a look at the map and get a sense Uh, here geographically where uh, David is. Now you recall that we left him in En Gedi along the shore of the Dead Sea and after that situation with Saul in the cave and so forth it said he went to the stronghold which may mean Masada just south of that and then you come to the west of that you see the wilderness of Maon and then Maon listed there and then Carmel just a mile two at the most uh, north of my own. So David is in this area. Remember also that the wilderness of Ziph is just north of Carmel. So here's where David 
uh, was, and of course here is where Naval and Abigail and the rest are living and working. Okay? Now, we are told here that uh, this man, we're not told his name yet, but we are told that he is uh, very wealthy. Um, he lives in my own, presumably he has some barns in Carmel, maybe he just followed where his sheep were and that's where they sheared him, but whatever the case, he has 3,000 of these sheep and a thousand goats, and so this is a, a very large farm. So, you know, Kevin, take however many you take care of and multiply by, you know, a handful here or so. And, um, and so this is now sheep shearing time. Typically, they did this in the spring or the fall, and so it was kind of like a harvest time, not of crops, but obviously of the wool, and they would take this and, of course, sell it and because there's so many, make lots of money. So this would be a time of great joy and feasting and celebration, and we read about them doing that later here in the chapter. All right, well now, verse 3 says, The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail, and she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. All right. Now, of course, in the Bible, names mean something. And Nabal means a fool or a foolish one. And later, as we read a moment ago, Abigail even makes a note of that. Now, many people have suggested that mom and dad did not name him Nabal and that he picked up this name throughout life. Maybe. Uh, maybe he was a spoiled brat as a kid, and maybe he grew up in wealth or something like that, and they called him a fool from the beginning. We, we don't know. But certainly by this time, this was his name, and it was very fitting. Even Abigail's wife, his servant, even David, and Nabal himself in certain ways even indicate that he is a fool. Now, by contrast, Abigail is really the exact opposite. Her name means, my father is joy. Okay, certainly, our heavenly father brings joy. Uh, we don't know exactly why she was named this, but that's her name and meaning. And we are told that she has good understanding and she was very beautiful. And then we come back to Nabal, and we are told that he is harsh. He is evil. We might say he is surly. Now, we are told here at the end of the verse that he is a descendant of Caleb. Now, of course, you remember Joshua and Caleb, the men of faith there going into the promised land and so forth. Um, so Caleb had faith, but here Nabal does not. He does not follow in the footsteps of his ancestor, Caleb. But you, you may recall that I've said on other occasions that Caleb, that name means dog, now, we're used to, in our culture, to think of a dog as something cute and furry and so on, and man's best friend and so on and so forth. But in that time, a dog was considered evil. It was considered wild and wicked. Now, Caleb did not live up to his name, but Nabal is living up to that name. So he is a fool. He is a dog. Sounds a bit like Saul, doesn't it? Now, there are various connections throughout this chapter with Nabal and Saul, and one of them I think we can find here. If you turn back to chapter 15 a moment, <clears throat> and I do want to return to this chapter here in a little bit, but in chapter 15, remember this is when God sent Samuel to Saul and he was to go kill the Amalekites. Remember, Saul doesn't kill them all like he was supposed to. And in verse 12, it says, so when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. He has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal, and so on. So here is Saul. Supposedly, he's obeyed God, but not completely. And he sets up a monument to himself. You know, maybe there's parades and fireworks and you know, all these refreshments or something, too. And notice it's in Carmel, same place where this sheep shearing is taking place. And now we come to a man who acts very much like Saul. We are told later, you recall when we read there, he, he acts like a king. And he gets drunk and so on and so forth. But this king is acting like a king among the nations. 
very much like Saul has done. Abigail, on the other hand, is fit for a king, a godly one. And by the end of the chapter, that's, of course, what happens. All right, now, note this point. This is really profound. Verse 2 is before verse (laughs) 3. But notice why verse 2 is before verse 3. It seems like Nabal's God was money. We're told how wealthy he is in verse 2, and then we're told about his character in verse 3. Seems to reflect the kind of man that he was. It's all about money. All right, well, let's keep going then. Verse 4, when David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, pause that thought, the sentence finishes in verse 5, and so let me say this here in regard to verse 4. Uh, the question that faces us is, when did this take place? Is this to be understood chronologically? In other words, everything we saw with the cave and David and Saul and such last in the last chapter and then the death of Samuel, is this then the next event, um, chronologically speaking? If that's true, then, right, he went from En Gedi, possibly down to Masada and came around here to Maon and Carmel. If you turn back to chapter 23 a moment, you remember that this is when David goes and saves the men of Calah, and then he flees because they were going to hand him over to Saul. And remember later in the chapter, the men of Ziph, right, just north of Carmel, they go to Saul and say, hey, we know where David is. And note especially verse 24, they arose and went to Ziph before Saul, but David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the plain in the south of Jeshimon. So, It's possible, some have argued, that this is when chapter 25 took place. I don't know if we can answer for sure. In one sense, I don't know if it matters that much. But it does suggest to us that Nabal and the men of Ziph were on the same page. That both of them, or all of them, were against David. Well, verse 4 here ends by saying... Uh, that they were shearing sheep, and David has heard this. So then, verse 5, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. All right, so David here, pretty straightforward, sends ten of his men to bring greetings. And notice it says at Carmel, not Maon, so right where they're shearing the sheep. And then verse 6, this is what they're supposed to say. Thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. All right. Now notice the repeated word here, peace, three different times. Uh, This is another one of those key Hebrew words that we should understand, uh, shalom. It's a common Hebrew word that many of us, I'm sure, have heard, if not all of us. And um, it has the idea of pronouncing peace or saying uh, we wish you have a good life and good health and long life and, and, and wishing well-being on there, you know, this kind of thing. Today we might say good luck or something to that effect uh, in our culture. Um, it was also a normal greeting. You know, today we might say hi or hello and, and they would say shalom and, and sometimes it was not filled with all this extra meaning, but uh, this is common, common word to use, but David obviously... I think we can say here from this passage that he means something um, quite significant. Peace to you. Well-being, good health, long life be to you, Nabal. Now notice how the verse has uh, started here. Thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, the New King James says. Note it, in prosperity is in italics. It's not in the Hebrew. They add it here, and that may be the idea. But if you leave it out, say to the living. By the end of the chapter, this living one's going to be dead. And so it seems to highlight and anticipate that that change will come. All right, so then you continue, verse 7. Now I have heard that you have shears. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them. All the while they were in Carmel. Now again, these are the words David's speaking to his men at this point, and they then are to bring this to Nabal. And so, again, it's pretty straightforward here. Heard that you were shearing, 
And I wanted to let you know that we helped you out. You may not have been aware of that, but we helped. And the protection we provided meant that nothing bad happened. We didn't harm your shepherds, and nothing else harmed your shepherds or your sheep because we were there. So no animal, no thieves, nothing else while we were around. So then verse 8, ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand, to your servants, and to your son, David. All right, now we come to the main point. Again, David's speaking to his men at this point, but the main idea is uh, David wants something. Now, at the beginning of the verse, of course, it says, look, ask your servants, they can tell you this is true, I'm not making it up, and so on. And so give us food, give us supplies as payment for helping you in this way. Notice David's humility. We started with peace, peace, peace. We see here in this verse the word please. We see the language of servant and even of son. Now, certainly that communicates humility. It may also be a hint that David is saying, look, I'm a son of Judah like you are. Right? Caleb was a son of Judah and here now this man and David was, uh, Saul's not, remember, he's the son of Benjamin, but I'm a son of Judah. And so maybe there's a little bit of politicking going on, you might say. So here's what they're to say to Nabal. Now, this may seem a bit odd to us, but it's not all that different. But, but let me say this here. This was not really an uncommon scenario uh, in the ancient world, especially in an agrarian culture. Um, it was much more common not to have fences around your pasture land. It was common for people to move their flocks around. Remember we saw that with Saul and the donkeys and such. Remember Joseph and going after his brothers, right? It's common for them to kind of wander around. And because of this, you often went into somebody else's property. And so there was this give and take. There was uh, not necessarily anything formal, anything written up, but kind of an unwritten rule that you would help each other. And so that's what David is saying here is not unusual at all. Now, furthermore, when it came to sheep shearing time, this is often when the shepherds got paid. And that's because they would uh, bring and you'd see how many sheep survived. So he's got 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. You know, maybe it was divided into uh, 40 different groups or something like that. Uh, we don't know, of 100 each. Uh, but whenever they came, they would then, uh, you know, go through the chute or whatever it was. They'd count them up, and if they were given 100 and they only bring back 98, then obviously that was taken from their payment. They did not bring all of those animals back. Um, but based on what David says, and even what the servant says later, uh, it doesn't sound like they lost any of them. And so, in my scenario, if they grouped them in hundreds, every, every one of those groups had a hundred animals. And so, because of this, David is basically saying, you owe me something for helping you. David's not asking for a gift. He's not asking for a handout. He is asking for a kind of repayment. Now add to this all the principles of hospitality. We see it throughout the scriptures, and especially here in Israel and the ancient world, hospitality was a very important aspect of culture. If you did not show hospitality to your neighbor, then there was something wrong with you. Okay? And so right, you'd invite people over for lunch or dinner or something like that. And, and if you didn't do that, you're um, sinning. So put all of that together and you see how David's request makes some sense. And Nabal's response doesn't. So let's look then at verse 9. <clears throat> so when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. All right, so again, verses 6 to 8, David's telling them what to say. Now they come, they actually say it just as David commanded. 
Now notice how the verse ends there. It says they waited. Uh, does this mean that Nabal was interrupted and he had to go deal with something and he came back? Um, did the man give this message to servants who then took it to Nabal and then they waited for a response or for Nabal to come? We don't know. But they're waiting. And uh, yet notice this point. You see how David's men are doing exactly what David says. In verses 14 and following, through, in many ways, the rest of the chapter, Nabal's servant and wife, they don't do what Nabal says. Note the contrast. All right, now, kind of setting the stage here. So what does this mean for us? How do we make application in this way? Well, it's not exactly the same. Obviously, we don't have the same scenario here. Even in agrarian cultures, it isn't necessarily the same around the world or even in uh, parts of, of our country. Um, nevertheless, don't we have a similar kind of unwritten rule with our neighbors? And whether you have 3,000 sheep or, you know, lawnmowers and weedy whackers and this, that, and the other, um, it, it's not uncommon for us to relate to our neighbors with this kind of unwritten rule that you expect them to help you in various ways, and then you're going to pay that back and vice versa and so on and so forth. So say, for example, you're away for a few days and your neighbor collects the mail while you're away. Or maybe they plow your driveway in wintertime. Or maybe they bring your dog back when he or she gets loose. There's no payment. There's no formal contract. But we're looking out for each other. And then you expect it to be paid back. Maybe not exactly, but maybe you break your leg or your neighbor breaks their leg and you go mow the lawn or vice versa or you drive them to the store when they have car trouble. And Do you see the point? You kind of work together and so forth. It's a similar scenario even in our culture. And of course, we do that with McFarland's across the street or the Miller's up there and so forth. Just here the other day, we took up some eggs and uh, they had brought us down some fish right before we left, and didn't they send something else back with, with uh, was it Matthew here the other day? I mean, it's just this kind of thing, right? There's no money exchanged and so on. Okay, and so it's not just being nice, but there's just kind of this unwritten rule of being a good neighbor. So... <clears throat> Um, we have a similar scenario here. So then the question is, are we going to be like David or are we going to be like Nabal? What describes us? Are we keeping tabs? Are we being generous? Are we showing, really, hospitality? It's really a form of that. Or are we being greedy and selfish and a grouchy neighbor? Now, certainly we can apply this in other ways as well. We can talk about this in work. You know, you, you, you know the employee who, you know, <clears throat> end of the workday comes, oop, bang, you hit your uh, time clock, and you're out of there, right on the dot, right? Or, or uh, you leave uh, a couple minutes early or something to that effect, and, and, you know, eight hours are up, I'm done, forget it. Even if a job could be finished in another five minutes, or it's like the church member who doesn't volunteer to help. Or I'll do this, but I'm not going to do that. I give money, I don't need to do anything else. It's an issue of a servant's heart. It's an issue of generosity. It's an issue of really loving and caring for our neighbor okay, or fellow church member. So which one's describing us? Are we like David? Are we like Nabal? Are we like Abigail, as we'll see? Are we like the servant? So again, this isn't just a history lesson. There are certainly things for us to implement today. Well, unfortunately, Nabal is not a good neighbor. Okay? No state farm for him. All right. Now, verse 10. <clears throat> then Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. 
Obviously, Nabal has rejected David's request, and he will not give David anything. Now, on the one hand, uh, we, we read the Eighth Commandment this morning, right? The, at least uh, what we shouldn't do and such. You know, the Eighth Commandment ensures private property. We're not to steal and so on and so forth, right? And so, I mean, this is Nabal's stuff. He has a right to do with it what he wants, as he pleases. However, that doesn't mean we are to be greedy. We are to be generous. And here is Nabal breaking the basic principle of loving your neighbor, the basic unwritten rules of relating to your neighbor. Now, surely David is just passing through, yet still David helped him and is unwilling to give him anything. Notice then verse 11 Note the pronouns here. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who, when I do not know where they are from? How many did you count? The New King James lists seven. There's actually eight in the Hebrew. Okay, they obscure one of them. But uh, the point is the same, right? Look how selfish he is. It's all about him, me and and I and my and so forth. All right, now, <clears throat> I think the point's pretty straightforward here, but let me bring in something that uh, some of the commentators tried to, to make the case for. Notice that David isn't just by himself. It's not even just a dozen people. Right? There are 600 men in his group. <clears throat> and so imagine that uh, David has come and settled in your backyard with all these people. And think about it this way. It is quite likely that at least some of these men are married and have children. Maybe those wives and children are with them. We're going to see by the end of the chapter that David has multiple wives, and of course they start having children. Even if half of these men are married and have two children, that's about 1,500 people. If all of them are married and have four children, that's 3,600 people. Yeah, whatever the number is, it is likely more than 600. So imagine you have people that are roaming around, being chased by the cops, as it were, and they settle in your backfield or something like that. This isn't good for real estate and resale, is it? Okay. These gypsies are, are, are making it hard for us. The point is, maybe some of this is going on too. And maybe there are people in Maon and Carmel that are talking to the ball and saying, you know, we don't want these people around. This, this, is, this is hard for us. It's expensive. There's a lot of mouths to feed. Maybe David's been asking other people too. So the argument simply is, um, let's try to understand why Nabal would be not so happy about this. Okay, maybe there's something to that. But that's certainly not what the text emphasizes. Notice what is stated here in verse 10. Now think of Saul. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Now, it is quite possible that the servants came to Nabal and mentioned, hey, David, the son of Jesse, wants something. Um, but doesn't that sound a bit like Saul? I remember Saul wouldn't even say David's name at times, just called him the son of Jesse. But even more so, look at the rest of the verse. There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Now, based on some of the things you see later in the chapter, this is an indication that Nabal knows who David is. And he knows that David is running from Saul. And again, it, it's, it's quite conceivable to think of Nabal and the men of Ziph possibly working together, or at least Nabal knowing about it. Furthermore, right, these 600 men, they're a bunch of uncivilized, law-breaking people who keep running from the law, right, and so forth. So in one sense, you can understand Nabal's response here. On the other hand, do you see how he's unwilling to help the new king, the anointed king? Now, 
I don't think it's a stretch to think that that's what he is thinking. Because of what happened with the men of Ziph in chapter 23, and even more so, Abigail, did you catch that, what I read a little bit ago? She says that David's going to be the next king. They know this. Nabal wants no parts of it. And so Nabal is greedy, yes. Nabal will not show hospitality. He won't invite David over for dinner. But he also doesn't want David as his king. Simply, Nabal is really on Saul's side. So we have hints throughout the chapter. When you put them all together, I think this has to be our conclusion. And so here is an evil, wicked dog, a fool, who will not accept God's newly appointed king. It is true, Saul is still king at this point. But note how the servant responds and note how Abigail responds very differently. All right, well, let's look now at verse 12. So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Attention is building. In fact, all the conjunctions here could be translated as then or next. So to read it again... Then David's young men turned on their heels. Then they went back. Then they came. Then they told all these words. Then David said to his men and such into verse 13. The action is picking up. And obviously verse 13 makes that clear. All right. Now before we look at how David responds, we need to ask ourselves the question I already asked us. Are we like Nabal? Or are we like David? Are we a good neighbor? Or are we just surly and inhospitable and greedy? And uh, I, I'll help in this way, but not in that way. And there's no servant's heart. There's no real love for our neighbor or our fellow church member or a fellow co-worker. Here's the question for us. We obviously know what it's supposed to be. The question is, what is it really? All right, well, let's look at verse 13. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. Now, 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. All right, obviously, David is upset. In one sense, you can't blame him. And he now is ready to go and, at the very least, force Nabal to pay up and even to kill him. And in light of what we read later in the chapter, right, he's going to destroy all males by morning. So David is ready to kill because this man didn't invite him over for dinner. Nabal is living up to his name. What about David? You see how David is stooping down to Nabal's level. Nabal is not a believer. I think that is abundantly plain in the chapter. David is a believer. But he's acting like an unbeliever here, isn't he? David is acting like a foolish dog. Like Nabal. Like Saul. David cannot be commended. For this response, it shows that even a man after God's own heart can do some very terrible things. He, he hasn't even seen Bathsheba yet. He hasn't even thought about counting the number of people in Israel. Those are the obvious sins. You see this one. Look at David's foolishness. It's not just Nabal who's a fool. David's playing the fool here too. David does not live by faith. David does not turn the other cheek. David is acting like a pagan king. What a contrast from the last chapter when he would refuse to kill Saul. He won't kill the anointed king, but he's ready to kill this man just because he didn't invite him over for dinner. But do you see what this tells us? David is the anointed one. 
We're going to have some great things said about David in 2 Samuel 7, among other places. He is the anointed one, but not the anointed one. David is the Messiah, but not the Messiah. These stories that talk about sin make it abundantly clear that we need to keep looking for someone greater. The he of Genesis 3.15 is going to come through David, but is not David. And so we learn from David and we're pointed to Christ. All right. Well, let's come back to the, if you will, relationship point here. Don't we often do the same thing as David? We help somebody out. They do not respond in kind, and we get mad. Right? We all have done this. Okay. When somebody fails us, when somebody does not respond to us in a way that we think is needed or uh, acceptable or whatever, right, we act spitefully too. I've been here long enough to fail all of you. I've been here long enough to offend all of you. And, and I don't mean offending you with the truth. I mean offending you because I'm a sinner too. You respond spitefully to me. We all have sinned against one another here at church. Every one of us has sinned against another church member in one way or another. Do we hold a grudge? Do we want to take vengeance too? Do we want to hold them accountable? And then, of course, what about in the four walls of our home? If this is what characterizes us, then we have to ask the question, are we a Nabal? But even if we're a true believer, we have to still examine ourselves. Are we going to act like David in this way? Are we going to act like this servant of Nabal and like Abigail? Abigail really is the hero of this chapter, and even the servant, you might say, more so than Abigail. David's not the hero. Let's not pattern our lives after him. And so, David should have forgiven this man and moved on. Maybe he could have held him accountable in some way in court or something like that. But he won't do it. And so he needs someone to intervene. And thankfully, God sends two people to do it. To save David from becoming like Nabal and sinning. And even saving Nabal in the process. And the first one God sends, of course, is this servant. A nameless servant. Unknown to us. Look at verse 14. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. We don't know this man. We don't hear anything about him after this. We don't know his name. Um, But isn't this what we often see in the scriptures, that it's not just the people that we can say by name, but even the people that we don't know by name that God uses to advance his kingdom. In this case, to save David from a terrible, terrible thing. Too bad one of David's servants didn't do that when Bathsheba came over. Could have spared Bathsheba and Uriah and many others a lot of heartache. But here's this man, and he comes, and he, you might say, play this as a hero. He's in this history book, but you might say barely. But God uses him. And he basically comes to Abigail because there's no use to speak um, to Nabal. So he goes to godly Abigail. And in fact, the first word in verse 14 is Abigail. And so we'll pick up on that in verse 18 here, Lord willing, next time. And so he uh, reports to her what happened. 
And notice the term that he uses here. It says that his master reviled these ten men that David sent. Now that's a fair way of translating it. You could say they yelled, or he yelled at them. He railed at them. He shrieked at them. He was shouting at them. Shouted them out of his presence is the idea. And don't picture a ball just sitting there and say, no, forget it. <clears throat> Maybe he chased them out of the room. In fact, you can translate this word as swooping down like a bird of prey attacking some animal. If you look back at chapter 15 again here in verse 19, the same word is used. Verse 19, and why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Another connection here with Nabal and Saul. All right, so verse 15 then says, But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. So remember back in verse 8, uh, David basically says, Look, you can ask your servants. I'm not lying to you. And here now is this servant telling Abigail that, yes, what David said is true. He confirms David's words, and so in verse 16, Then they are a wall to us, both by night and day, all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. And so David protected them. He didn't just not harm them, verse 7, but he protected them. And so the point simply is, we owe them. Okay? Nabal is not doing the right thing here. So verse 17, Now therefore know and consider what you will do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. All right, so the servant here is very forceful, actually two commands here to Abigail, and says you need to really consider how you respond. Now, we don't know, did he overhear the men? Did he see David putting on a sword and he comes running to Abigail? We don't know how he knows what David's going to do, but he's right. David is going to kill them all. And so he comes and tells her, you need to do something, because there's no use talking to Nabal. He's a scoundrel, as he says. Um, Now that word there, scoundrel, uh, your translation may have something else. Mine has a footnote. It's literally son of Belial. Now you may remember that the sons of Eli were called sons of Belial. You may remember in chapter 10, after Saul was anointed and the lot came out and such, that there were some people that did not accept Saul as king. Well, they were called sons of Belial. So here's another connection with Saul. So here is Nabal acting like Eli's sons. Here is Nabal acting like these men who were against Saul. And so Nabal is not just stubborn. He's not just foolish, he is evil, he is wicked, and he is refusing to accept David as king, like these other men didn't accept Saul as king. So, here's where we come and basically have to stop before we keep going with Abigail. But as I pull it together here, Again, we're asking ourselves the question, what kind of person are we like? Are we like Nabal? Are we like David? Are we like this servant? David refused to take matters into his own hand in the last chapter. Now David is taking matters into his own hands and wants to seize Nabal out of spite. The, the point in that comment is this. Just because you do something well at one point doesn't mean you do it well all the time. We may do a good thing over here and do a terrible thing over here. That's what David is doing. And so, again, this is obviously a challenge to us. Don't think, well, just because I do a good thing in one place that I'm fine. We need to persevere. We need to overcome. 
As we read in 1 Peter this morning, we need to be holy as God is holy, not just on occasion, but all the time. As we read in Revelation 14, right, the 144,000, we must live a blameless life. Now, David is not living blamelessly here. There is forgiveness, but the challenge is the focus here. So, you'll notice my title of the sermon here, Fools in Their Foolishness. This is Nabal and this is David. And so let us consider these things for ourselves. We will um, pick up here next time and you might say carry the servant's godliness even further here with Abigail. So we'll look at that, Lord willing, next time. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you here for your word and how in this story you give us such a clear uh, message and uh, challenge. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would um, be merciful to us and that you would prevent us, any of us, from being Nabal. We pray that we all would have a heart for you like David. But we also pray, Lord, that you would work in us, that we would not fall prey to these spiteful and self-centered things when people are mean to us or harm us, even unintentionally. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be like this servant, to show wisdom, to be like, as we'll see, Abigail, who shows wisdom. We pray, Lord, that you would be um, working in us to be holy as you are holy, to persevere to the end, to live a life of, of blamelessness for your honor and for your glory, and that we would then love our neighbors the way you call us to do. And so, Lord, we pray for your mercies in this way. We thank you, ultimately, that our hero is not David, that we don't look to ourselves in any way, but we look to Christ, who never once acted like Nabal, who never played the fool, but always was godly in all things. And we are thankful that because of this, there is salvation in him. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to rest in this truth and therefore live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. We pray these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.